Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. In these politically charged pandemic days of anti-critical race theory legislation and backlash against teachers who teach truth, there are stories of hope and calls to action. In this episode, we talk with a high school studies teacher who is working for racial equity and justice in his classes and within the school system. Anthony Downer teaches Africana Studies and Civics at Frederick Douglass High School in the Atlanta public school system at the lowest performing school in this system. In this podcast, Anthony tells his own and his students, known as Mr. Downer Scholars, stories of working together toward a trauma-informed, healing-centric classroom. Anthony attended public schools in Gwinnett County, Georgia, attained an undergraduate degree in political science at the University of Chicago, followed by a master's in teaching social studies education at Georgia State University. And then he returned to teach in Gwinnett before moving to Frederick Douglass High School. On this journey, Anthony came to connect with his students and teacher colleagues and parents and to organize for more liberating teacher and student controlled abolitionist educational model. Anthony is co-founder and vice president of Georgia Educators for Equity and Justice, the founder and lead learner in his Liberation Learning Lab, and the host of his own podcast, What Dat Wednesday, Conversations on Education and Liberation, found on educational entities on YouTube and Instagram Live at the address The Knopf Star. T-H-E-N-A-W-F-S-T-A-R. On this podcast, Anthony shares his abolitionist toolkit, his political organizing work, what and who inspires him, where he and his scholars find joy, and his freedom dreams for the future. Welcome, Anthony Downer, to Nothing Never Happens. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for being here on our podcast. Um, we are great admirers of your podcast, which we hope we'll get to talk about today. Um, but to start, um, will you just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us how you came to the abolitionist liberatory teaching that you do? Um, and, you know, take us through that any way you can. That could be about experiences. That could be about theoretical frameworks that have been really important to you. Um, organizations. Floor is open. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lucia and Tina, for having me in your space today. So glad to talk about all things radical uh, teaching um, and, and introduce myself. So my name is Anthony. I'm currently a teacher at Frederick Douglass High School in Atlanta Public Schools. Um, I've been teaching. This will be my fifth year, uh, which is crazy because I've taught through uh, the pandemic uh, for a few uh, years. And, um, and teaching was also not my uh, aspiration. Um, and, and so I think uh, I can attest to teaching being a calling um, as being something that kind of hits you out of nowhere. Um, I was raised in uh, Metro Atlanta and Gwinnett County Public Schools specifically uh, in a very multicultural part of one of the most multicultural and diverse uh, school systems in the southeastern United States. Um, and I grew up just with this very Black-centric um, mentality, uh, this uh, uh, 
very joyful household. Um, I grew up learning things that I didn't learn in the classroom. So my mom and my parents always made sure to teach us our family history, our black history, our world history outside of the curriculum. Uh, and I was a bright student. I excelled in classes um, and I, I eventually got a full ride scholarship to attend the University of Chicago. Uh, where my world was turned upside down. Um, number one, it was the first time I was in this very white centric space, uh, lacking the diversity that I was raised with. Uh, and it was also at the time, uh, this was, uh, I went to school around 2013, 2017. So this was the time with the rise of Black Lives Matter. Uh, this was the conversation on uh, college campuses we were having around freedom of expression. And so I was radicalized politically um, in Chicago um, mostly by learning this organizing tradition, this uh, abolitionist tradition um, of the city. And, and shortly after um, graduating, I had this awakening that led me to the classroom. Um, and uh, from the onset, I didn't know how to teach. I hadn't studied to be a teacher, but once I got into the classroom where I was subbing and eventually teaching, I was focused on, laser focused on a radical teaching tradition that would confront the inequities that our black and brown students uh, face. And so I did a lot of work. I did a lot of homework to learn about the, uh, uh, the black radical teaching tradition um, or fugitive pedagogy. I read Gloria Lansing Billings and I read Bell Hooks and Derek Bell, um, uh, Bettina Love, Goldie Muhammad, Zaretta Hammond, W.E.B. Du Bois, Card G. Woodson. Um, I joined and uh, worked with the Abolitionist Teaching Network under Bettina Love. Um, and, and I've been really guided by, I think two quotes um, have guided not only my life's abolitionism, but my classroom abolitionism. And that's uh, one by Lerone uh, Bennett, an educator in a system of oppression is either a revolutionary or an oppressor. And then Angela Davis, I am no longer accepting what I cannot change, I'm changing what I cannot accept, which is actually the quote that hangs over my shoulder in the back. Um, and so from the onset, as I said, I was very clear uh, internally and then with um, my colleagues, my administrators, that I'm a different kind of teacher, that I'm trying to decolonize and revolutionize what we consider teaching and learning. Um, and I've had great success with that in my classrooms. Thank you for that. Um, we first met uh, about a month ago at the Teaching Truth Rally, uh, the Truth Walk, a day of action that was a national uh, series of events in, in several cities across the United States, um, supported by Teaching for Change and the Howard Zinn Education Project. Um, so one of the things that you talked about there, if you could give us a little bit of context about uh, you and your, soci your social location as a Black male teacher of social studies and Africana studies um, in the state of Georgia with the legislative laws that have come down most recently this winter, and um, um, uh, also in Atlanta Public Schools, you moved from Gwinnett County to Atlanta Public Schools. If you could kind of set the context for that before we get in kind of deep diving into your your classroom practices. Yes, and this is a um, this is a bit of a story, and, and I know that uh, stories are always appropriate for this platform. So. Um, I uh, started teaching when at Kennedy Public Schools, which is where I graduated from. I began teaching world history, which if you look at the standards is one, it holds some of the most possibility of any K through 12 social studies course 
of really bringing in that multiculturalism, that social justice, that abolitionism. Um, and so I started teaching and it was a tough position to teach in. I, I started teaching at Peachtree Ridge High School, um, which has, has over the past five, 10 years undergone dramatic demographic um, change. And today it's major, it's uh, plurality black, um, majority um, students of color, but it's teaching staff does not reflect that. Um, and so I, I remember attending, and again, I was 22, 23, shortly out of college, never uh, studied to be a teacher. And just wearing teacher t-shirts like this, protect black children or Black Lives Matter or teach the truth, uh, I got the side eyes. So even before people heard what I was teaching back, just to see me um, eventually with my, I grow my hair or wore braids, which, which uh, uh, attracted some looks and just to be a different kind of person, um, just to be a different kind of uh, black person. Um, I, I think that they were used to a type of black teacher that I was not. And I was, I think that my students also found that refreshing. And so um, by the second, my second year, the pandemic hit. Um, and I was also in a um, grad program at Georgia State, the MAT program, social studies, which is also where I got a lot of this radical pedagogy. But um, the pandemic hit the second semester of my second year. And we had to grapple with some of the worst inequities. And we had to see those every single day. Um, and, and we weren't just seeing them in our classrooms. We were seeing kids' whole lives. I mean, I, I got closer to my kids and my parents than I ever was. And um, we were very tired uh, with the shifting policies. You know, when we first were let out, they were like, you know, this is a two weeks vacation. We'll be back in two weeks. No, <laughs> we didn't go back for months. Um, and we were very tired, but what a, a few colleagues and I decided to do was uh, start a group called Gwinnett Educators for Equity and Justice. This was June 2020 when we were at our t most tired, but we were so frustrated because at that point, school districts were still saying, oh, we'll go back in the fall. Everything will be fine. We'll be back on track. Well, we weren't on track before, and now we're way, way off track, and we're going to ignore uh, the inequities. We're going to ignore the safety risks. And so we started this activist group uh, that pushed for four um, uh, priorities for racial equity and justice um, and used tactics straight out of the black organizing tradition to take on our superintendent and our board of education. At that time, our superintendent, 78 years old, had been serving 24 years. Our board was majority white and Republican, again, in a district that was 80% students of color, 50% low income students. And so uh, we pushed and we got a lot of wins. And one of the wins that I'm very proud of was an ethnic studies course uh, that was in uh, 12, almost half of the high schools in the uh, district as of uh, last year. And I remember this was in July, August, we were having this conversation, putting together the standards and the resources and uh, the um, associate superintendent, I think at that point he was um, maybe not in that position yet, but he was over curriculum and instruction. And he comes to a meeting, he says, y'all, we're getting these calls and these emails about critical race theory. Granted, 80% of our students are students of color, but beginning around June, July, that loud 15 to 19% of white parents began showing their power and, and pushing for changes to the policy that eventually uh, happened. But they were upset about this critical race theory. And he said, you know, I just want to make sure critical race theory is not tied to the ethnic studies. And I said, it is. 
I said, you know, and I want to be very clear, we have a lot of people that, you know, try to distance themselves from critical race theory and, oh, we don't teach it. It's not in our standards. That's accurate. It is not in our standards. We do not teach the theory. However, those of us who have studied things like critical race uh, studies in education, we do teach from a lens of critical race theory. We do teach the tenets of critical race theory, that the United States and places like Georgia are fundamentally and systemically racist, that uh, the narratives and voices and perspectives of people of color matter when we're teaching and we're studying in an academic uh, space. Those tenets we do teach. Uh, and those tenets we did put at the foundation of the ethnic studies course. So it was a bit of a battle, but eventually we got that approved unanimously by the community um, with a few changes. And the pilot program was um, widely successful and our students are pushing for even more diverse courses. And so uh, in, my, in my classes, uh, world history, I, I think the challenge, the, this overarching critical race theory uh, debate has limited uh, what our students are learning. It has attacked and, and unfairly tied uh, much of what we teach to critical race theory. Culturally responsive pedagogy and critical race theory are two widely different, I guess not widely, but very different concepts. Uh, equity is not critical race theory. A social emotional learning is not critical race theory. Um, but, but still, um, and, and I'm not sure how many uh, professions have to grapple with this uneducated and ignorant segment of the population that still has a large outsized influence on on how their profession operates. Uh, and so that's what we've been at risk at. But I have not changed anything, will not change anything uh, now that this law has happened because I know that this law is only another line in the sand. Uh, teachers like I have throughout history been uh, victims of attacks and censorship. And th this law continues that tradition. Um, my, my teaching of white, white supremacy was under attack before this law was even introduced. And so, uh, but what, like I said, what it does is draws that line in the sand and makes it official in many ways. Um, and, and so we'll have to continue to raise our voices and, and, and commit to teaching what we're teaching, teaching the truth, regardless of what the law says and regardless of what the punishment is. Um, that, that, I mean, so, so many great things in your answer from something we often are emphasizing on this podcast, which is the relationship between Black freedom organizing and radical education historically, and that that has always been um, a response to white supremacist violence that has, that has been vibrant and existing in many, many ways um, for generations. Um, and that this anti-CRT um, backlash, this white supremacist backlash um, is, is only one current manifestation of a carceral response to that. Um, one of the ways that I have seen a lot of this um, racist legislation be justified um, is in terms of a kind of like psychological harm argument that the little white children are going to go home and say, mommy, am I a racist? And that um, that one of often one of the first things that 
um, that the legislation and the talking points will say is no, nobody should be made to feel guilty or psychologically inferior. I, um, I feel like there are a lot of ways to address that point. And in some, there's a way that like, it's like so preposterous is to be like, okay, like next. Um, I still think though, for listeners, it might be helpful to hear how you respond to that. Um, as we all collectively think about like, how are we gonna have these conversations in our own communities? Yeah, this is an important question because the, I think the emphasis for the legislation is that, um, and, and we've been called out by names, they've, they've talked about this characterization directly uh, uh, to us on social media and in person, that we went to these liberal institutions um, uh, these higher ed institutions, we were radicalized and we were on the forefront of the freedom of expression fight. And now we're, we're back in the classroom now trying to indoctrinate a whole, uh, yeah, exactly like the University of Chicago. We're trying to indoctrinate a whole generation of students. First of all, I have to be clear, I was radicalized in, in college. So you're kind of correct. You're, you're on the right track. But the fact that it, I can sit in the classroom and indoctrinate 30 to 40 students, you're, if I could indoctrinate students, I would have them turn in their assignments on time. I would have them stop cussing me out. I would have them keep their hands to themselves, keep their masks on. There's so many things we would get to before we got to critical race theory. But but what this does, when I think about this characterization, it pains me and it breaks my heart because our students are not these passive beings who just take in what we, what we tell them uh, and, and, and then that's it. Of course, we have a large impact on our students. And I have students, I think the oldest students I've taught are now in their sophomore, maybe junior year of college. And I, I get emails and calls still talking about the kind of classroom we crafted together and the impact that I had on them. Absolutely, I don't discount our influence, but our students are not passive. And by the time I get them in the ninth or 10th grade, they have already formed large parts of their worldview. They already have deep opinions. They know what they're interested and curious in. They bring loads of background knowledge. And this, this thing we call teacher and learning is actually a, a shared and a mutual intellectual and academic pursuit um, and where they grow in their knowledge. Yes, exposure is impactful, but they arrive at their own solutions and their own conclusions. I'll give you a great example. We, um, uh, I previously um, taught government, I think this next year I'll be teaching world history, um, but um, I taught government and so we looked at one of the issues plaguing uh, the communities of my scholars on the west side of Atlanta, police brutality and mass incarceration. And so we looked at it, we explored it, we looked at artifacts, they put together evidence, we had a debate, we had discussions, um, and, and I was pushing them uh, towards, as an instructional um, practitioner, trying to give them all kind of resources, but pushing them towards um, uh, understanding police abolition, prison and police abolition, as a concept that I knew they were unfamiliar with, but as, again, a diverse perspective or narrative that they needed access to. And after a deep exploration that lasted weeks, some students still did not arrive at abolitionism. Some of them did not believe that um, the abolition of 
police and prisons are a, a valid solution and direct solution to mass incarceration, as I do. Uh, and that's perfectly fine because they arrived at those conclusions with ample evidence and claims and they backed up their arguments. And, and guess what? They may arrive at that in 10 or 20 years. They may not. They may be staunch that we need police officers in our schools and communities. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of this intellectual pursuit. Um, so really to characterize our students like that is, is uh, offensive to me, absolutely, but even more offensive to them because they are way more powerful and brilliant than we're giving them credit for. On that note, could you keep going further um, about what's in your abolitionist toolkit? Um, you're dealing with uh, school to prison pipeline in Atlanta and how um, used to be, I don't know if it's still the case, uh, third grade um, standardized test scores were, were linked with how many prison cells they built in the state of Georgia. Uh, so there, I told my daughter there's actually a prison cell for her because of her scores on that test. Yeah, but not really. I mean, you know, realistically. But uh, so this this whole um, system in our state is is a course carceral. Um, so what's in your what's in your toolkit? Take us through some of the you've mentioned some of your um, intellectual mentors. Um, and in one of one of the things I read or an interview you had, you mentioned your first black teacher, Mr. Gordon. Uh, so, but what are you reading now and what are the things that you could point us uh, and our listeners to? Yes, uh, so abolitions teaching, uh, I wanna be clear is a, a teaching approach that centers ab abolishing oppressive educational systems while loving, protecting, remembering, and healing, especially Black uh, children and other children of color and their communities. And so this is a little bit different than anti-racist education or multicultural or social justice education in that it directly deals with the carceral state. And I knew that being at Doug, uh, which is in a community where about half of the, of the people in, in that zip code go to the nearest penitentiary, where many of my students uh, I would say 99% of my students can talk about some interaction they've had or a family member has had with the prison system, with the police system. Uh, this was a really real issue. I knew that their communities, in their words, were over-policed, that there was a lot of trust, uh, that there was a lot of negativity in their experience. And so we had to hit it head on. And that, was, that meant looking at the ways in which um, white supremacy and uh, the cultural state are upheld by the schools, by communities, um, by, by the government, um, um, by candidates that we were looking at in our government class, um, the ways in which we as individuals buy into this carceral system. And as I said, um, that, that of course led to an exploration of prison and police abolitionism as one example of freedom dreaming. But it also included um, uh, some of the other conservative and, and, and progressive um, um, methods of you know, increasing funding. What if we increase funding for uh, police and train them better? Can that help? What if we uh, um, have more police officers who look like us? You know, and, and my students responded, that was probably one, um, one strong response I got is, well, what if we just have more black officers? 
many of them, hey, we do have a lot of black officers. I, my, all my community is the, the officers treat me the worst are black officers. And so uh, we are able to look at uh, kind of this, um, these issues and, and through this prism of abolitionism, we were look, able to look at um, every single issue and every single standard that we needed to in government, but with its uh, connection to white supremacy, uh, with connections to the carceral system and looking for, at uh, abolitionist policies. And so for my students to, uh, they wrote policies for some of them right abolitionist policies that mimic the BREATHE Act put forward by the Movement for Black Lives, that was special because we don't see, we, we tell folks all the time, you can't be a politician and an abolitionist. You, abolitionism doesn't have space in today's political uh, landscape or policy forms. Uh, and my students proved that wrong. And so um, not only that though, before we get to the abolitionism that ties to the teaching practices and the, uh, and the curriculum, my students understandably are traumatized. The students I had last year were some of the most traumatized children I have ever met. APS had two full school years of um, digital learning, whereas GCPS and others had maybe one and a half. Those students hadn't seen, hadn't learned in the classroom in two full academic years. Um, they have come, as a result, they were coming from communities and households and environments that were not conducive not only to their learning but also their healing and so i learned very quickly based on how many kids cussed me out the first week that we had to have this uh healing centric this trauma-informed environment that too was abolitionist because the most radical thing a black person can do is love themselves unconditionally express themselves unconditionally and I, I did a lot of work trying to build those relationships and decolonize the classroom before we got into uh, the learning to make it a restorative space uh, so that students could feel safe and included that they belonged before they could learn. What were some of the practices that you did during that time and that you're continuing to do to cultivate um, belonging, wellness, care um, in an abolitionist frame um, in your context of influence at schools or outside of them? So I, I don't purport to be an expert on social emotional learning or mental health. In fact, I need more of that in my life. But uh, I had a toolkit and what I, what I um, put together over my years at UChicago and, and through my studies, we did things like healing circles. Um, and so it was really important, for instance, when we had a conflict between two students or even teacher and student, that we brought that to the forefront, that now that's everyone's issue because it's imp impacting the whole classroom and we're gonna deal with it um, in something like a healing circle. Or we're going to talk about in the recent episode of police violence or maybe a video that you saw on social media or something that you're dealing with. We're gonna to come together as a community in the classroom and heal from it through a circle, a restorative or healing circle. We also did a lot of meditation, which at first my students were not about. I, what, I gotta sit here and breathe quietly for five minutes and I can't check my phone when it's dinging, what? Um, but we were able to use time to breathe because sometimes when my students got, got, got to me, sometimes I had them during lunch, things had happened during the day. Things happened in the building, maybe there was a rash of fights, 
maybe someone had something, you know, a parent uh, was arrested the night before. There were things happening in the world that they needed to heal from and, and, and address before we got to the learning. Uh, one of my favorite activities to do is just a journal. And I would sit there and journal with them. And we would sometimes go outside and do this, um, put some music on. And again, at first they did not want to write, what, come on, can I type it? We're on our laptops. Nope, we'll get out the pencil and pen and we're going to write. And by the top, end of the year, when I would uh, cut them off after the 10 or 15 minutes, they would want to keep writing because um, many of them weren't used to expressing themselves in such a fashion, um, very calmly and peacefully. Uh, and, and then I read them and they weren't used to sharing those thoughts out loud with another person that they could trust and they could hold on to those problems. And so as, soon, as long as they did not violate, you know, my duty to uh, my mandated reporting duty, I, I kept those and I read those and I, and I remembered those stories and that pain that they shared. Uh, so those are a few of the, the, I think the easiest ways that teachers can really implement. But again, to have the trust to do a, a, a healing circle or to, to meditate, you have to have relationships first. You have to have that trust um, and that transparency first. Um, you, th those activities have to weigh until you build that. Uh, what would it mean for you to have uh, a, a totally free classroom where, you know, you're kind of your, your utopian classroom where there is complete freedom dreaming? What would that look like for you? Yeah, actually, I think there were some times during this past school year where I felt I was getting close to it. Um, first off, the whole system would have to be gone because um, to as a teacher, you, we have to understand we're at the bottom of the totem pole, the last rung on the ladder of decision making. And so first and foremost, we would change the uh, position in which the teacher is, how the teacher is supported so that they can then execute their prime duty of teaching and learning in a classroom. Um, I would love a small classroom of about 15 to 25 scholars. I, sometimes I do very well with large groups of students, but, but, but that's me from my perspective. Looking at, at the student's perspective, a classroom of 40 is too large. A classroom sometimes of 25 is too large. And so I have really um, enjoyed these small uh, classrooms. Last semester, I even had a classroom of, we had what, five students uh, and it was beautiful. It was amazing. Um, I didn't forget any names. And it, it, was, it was really easy, much easier to track learning, to track progress and participation, things like that with a smaller classroom. Um, our classroom wouldn't be monitored it would be supported um, uh, by not administrators, but other teachers. Uh, I, I think a classroom in, in the teacher-powered uh, schools model is what I'm thinking. A classroom in a school ran by educational practitioners, teachers who have the real-time experience and understanding of what it takes to push a school forward. Um, uh, the classroom would also be not be very long. It would be 45 minutes to an hour. Our sessions wouldn't be forever. And if they, uh, if they had to be long, they would be free flowing and student paced. Um, students would be working on different things at different uh, times, uh, maybe exploring the same topic or subject or concept, but doing it at their own pace. And again, in order for a teacher and, or a co-teacher to support that, the class would have to be small. And then finally, it wouldn't be outside. There would be, there would be, if we couldn't be outside, there would be windows. There would be 
places to move. I don't believe in the sit and get model. Um, even when I'm lecturing, I, there should be chaos, organized chaos, in which students have the freedom and the flexibility to move as they learn according to the learning style, because some students have to walk around uh, and, and, and talk as they learn and as they process. Some students really do want to sit still and have quiet. And I think a classroom that can in some way accommodate those different learning styles, that's the best kind. So I'm always thinking about ideas of how to implement and how to abut the system and how to get to that ideal classroom and the constraints that I'm in. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into the question that I was going to ask, which is what are some of the um, systemic conflicts or like space? And I think a lot in terms of like face at face offs, although that might be part of it, too. Um, but like sort of areas of tension where you're trying to figure out how to navigate and negotiate um, the institutional constraints with your freedom dreams. It requires a lot of resistance um, and it requires a, a bit of courage, a large amount of courage, not a bit, because um, this resistance pedagogy, um, this subversive pedagogy is a lonely undertaking many times. And there's of course ways in which you can influence and impact and, and build community. But when I got to Peachy Ridge, no one had heard words like decolonize. I mean, those were alien. And then even equity was kind of like, how is it different than equality? Oh my goodness. And, and we're still at that point in some, in some spaces. But um, I realized that the things I was talking about, abolitionist teaching, those were off the radar. Those were so far out of people's wheelhouses um, and might have been on, it might as well have been on Mars. And so um, it was a lonely undertaking. But I think by being consistent, by studying, um, I, I could bring folks to, to in the fold that were ready to be radicalized. Um, but it's hard. I think one of the biggest the areas of tension, you know, the, the media has characterized it as parent versus teacher. That these parents are just so upset by these liberal teachers. Actually, I've had some of the most support from my parents, including white parents, who are really interested in their students learning more about their history and learning how to uh, a partner and work with other people based on their culture and their history. And again, to do that in a world history classroom or an Africana or ethnic studies classroom is 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 so, uh, um, it, there's a lot of compatibility between the classroom and the curriculum. Um, my biggest tension actually has been with my colleagues, those who don't understand what I'm saying um, and don't believe it's as important. Um, and it's not just, my white colleagues, that was my black colleagues as well. I remember when I first got to Doug, um, we were looking at the American government standards and they're written in a way to suggest there was government, you know, here are the types of government. Europe created the best form of government, democracy from the enlightenment and it spread all over and, and look at democracy. Thank you so much Europeans and, and enlightenment thinkers. And I began pushing back against that. I, I didn't want our students to think that the concept of government or democracy came from Europe because it did not. And I wanted them to know there were other uh, forms of government way before Europe was even a concept. But to begin from this Eurocentric perspective, here's Europe, they push back against the status quo and then they create a United States and blah, blah, blah. 
that kind of narrative I knew was harmful to my classrooms, which are 96% black. But when I raised that concern in our uh, professional learning communities, black teachers pushed back. And I was so baffled because what I was saying was we need to, with black students, prevent Eurocentrism. And black teachers, they just wanted to teach the standards. Hey, no, let's, let's hey. They also, um, it was, I've seen this all over. One of the most racist things we can do in our classrooms is hold our students to a low standard by believing that they're not ready for certain skills. They're not ready to discuss certain concepts and topics, that they're not ready. Our students have shown time and time again that they are ready. And if they're not ready, isn't my job as a teacher to get them ready? Are I supposed to be developing skills and knowledge? I thought that's what I signed up for. So I won't complain about them not knowing by the ninth grade how to write a perfect essay or where something is on a map. I'm going to teach those things to them. Um, but uh, the, the, the colleagues, that tension, it has been the most heartbreaking because we need our colleagues. This is a collaborative profession. Of course, I've also gotten attention from administrators which is to be expected because I always ask and raise the tough questions that, that uh, challenge their job. And I know they're getting offended because they get defensive. Um, I've, I've ran in um, uh, butted heads, of course, with school board members and, uh, and district officials all the way up to the superintendent. And so um, this is a very, it's, it's tense work. It's, um, it's, it's not easy. It's not always about unity. And sometimes as I'm reminded, I am in the minority. Um, numerically, but uh, so were many of my ancestors. And and that's not to say I'm right and, and I'm drawing the line in the sand and I have all the answers. That's to say that we have to do a much better job of the, than the status quo. And I would much rather accept the uh, alternative of, hey, I'm figuring this out and I don't know the answer, I'm gonna experiment, than just take a, a, a list of standards someone hands me and, and teach them verbat verbatim because I don't know how to challenge the system. Yeah, it seems to me you've been able to build community um, and, and coalitions, uh, especially through um, Georgia Educators for Equity and Justice. And I need to mention your wonderful podcast um, that I've been listening to all week. Uh, that way on Wednesdays, uh, listeners, it is through the educational entities. It's on YouTube and Instagram live. And is it on Facebook Live? Yes. Okay. So you've been able to, to gather uh, the, the few and mighty of the teachers out there who um, are in this line of, of abolitionist uh, teaching. So if could you talk about uh, that struggle and um, the benefits of it that you see as you're fighting back and pushing back against not only administrators at your school, but um, school boards and the Georgia legislature. It, at first, it seems like a, um, um, a lonely endeavor. But again, with persistence and perseverance, uh, community follows. And when folks can see how adamant you are about serving and centering and bringing to the margins those students that have been left or bring to the center those students that have been left on the margins. When they realize uh, that it's not a sense of um, ambition or um, a, a sense of selfishness that drives you, when they realize that you're doing this for the community that raised you, for the students that you serve, 
authentically and fully, I think that's what brings people into the fold. And so when that educator is at its largest, had a, a Facebook group of 2000 and uh, hundreds of uh, teachers um, in their districts or in their clusters rather doing the work of equity. Um, we've brought together uh, teachers from all over the state and no, all of our actions are not um, large. We had one at Piedmont Park this uh, past weekend. Um, again, the sandwich teachers as they're going back to the classroom uh, in, in an effort to fight classroom censorship. Uh, we didn't have a lot of folks and sometimes we don't have a lot of folks. Um, but when we do those petitions, for instance, that get 4,000, 5,000 signatures, or when we have events, um, uh, or when we travel to conferences and we have workshops um, that fill up with scores of people, like at the College Board Conference that we uh, went to in DC recently, um, we understand that the core message, it might not be sexy all the time, it might not be the easiest thing to do, but be, people are trying. Um, I will say when educators, we did take advantage and we were opportunistic last summer of this kind of white racial awakening of white people all across the country saying, wow, um, I think I've played a part in white supremacy. I think I might be racist. I obviously have a lot of work to do. Uh, it was at first hard as a black man for those individuals to come to me and depend on me for the resources as if I wasn't dealing with massive trauma, <laughs> but um, but they came to the table and many of them stayed and they were authentic about the work. And the fact that that number grew, the fact that over my four, almost five years of teaching, I can say I went from one or two people talking about this to now in two school districts, scores of people talking about this issue, um, coming out and staying connected, that's a win. Um, and I'm very proud of that. Um, building community is something that matters deeply, essential to the work, because we can't do it alone. Um, uh, and, and it's going to take all of us in some form of fashion uh, to do some level of, uh, of our part. And I've done that with my parents, I've done with, that with my students, and now, of course, with my colleagues, we're building this movement for educational equity. It, in every sense of the word, it's a movement because there's so many of us working in collective and co collaboration. I was thinking as you were kind of talking about the loneliness of the work sometimes that one of the functions of like standardized tests and like standards that have to be taught in the classroom that are Eurocentric and white supremacist both explicitly and implicitly is to kind of present the truth as a uniform and like non-conflicted non whole. Um, that this gets imposed, you learn it, it's a banking model, and it's all very smooth. And it seems like from a lot of what you've said today, so much of your pedagogy and so much of liberatory pedagogy in general hinges on um, bringing to the surface the conflicts and contradictions that are always embedded in anything that outwardly appears like a norm. Like there is difference already in the classroom. It is, it is bubbling up as much as the right might be trying to suppress it and make it uniform, as much as liberalism might be trying to do the same thing and whiteness as that being a sort of like a project, a project to create the appearance of coherence when there is none. Um, so that brings me to a question about your coalition building and organizing. Coalition building is so hard and there is conflict 
that arises within coalitions, different visions, different levels of sort of experience and reflection and self-work around the racism that shapes all of our relationships. How do you um, and the coalitions you're part of kind of work through differences that arise within your liberation movements? And how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, coalition building is is one of the hardest things to do, and that's why I have worked on it so much. It's one of the most important pillars of my work. Um, Audrey Lord says it best, we're not in coalition because we like each other or because we agree. It's because our collective triumph and liberation is tied together. And that has been, that has really been my guiding light in coalition building because we have coalitions with people that I would not invite to my home. I don't want you near my kids eventually. I, I just want you to stay away. But because of this unique opportunity or this moment in time, we need each other. And so we have to put the disagreements aside. Um, and Gwinnett, that um, happened in several ways. First, again, a lot of white people came to the fold. And I don't think we were checking authentically every white person for um, a, a true commitment to, uh, to anti-racism. Um, and so that means white folks got into the coalition that really couldn't give a damn about anti-racism and that spied on us for the other side. But that's the, also uh, the other risk about coalition building is that people are going to turn on you. Um, and, and someone's going to, it's going to be convenient for someone to take some information or take this and then I'm going to take it to the powers of bees to get my benefits from that power structure. Um, we've also, I mean, our communities are so complex and, you know, in the black community, we have a lot of divisions. We have a lot of disagreements. There's the homophobia we have to deal with. There's the Islamophobia that has um, been an issue. There's the division between citizens and, and non-citizens um, and, and just so many divisions. And so sometimes when I, as a black person, when I'm putting together this coalition and I'm trying to bring other black folks, we have to put our intra-community disagreements and disputes aside to look like a united front for this coalition. Uh, and then sometimes um, the coalition breaks apart. And Gwinnett, I'm sad to say in a lot of ways that coalition we built two years ago has broken apart. Uh, and it's in ways that people don't want to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, for instance, uh, we have a very conservative population um, of Asian uh, Asians in, in Gwinnett. And we build this coalition specifically with the Asians around curriculum. Hey, we want more, you know, we're going to get ethnic studies and we're going to eventually get Asian studies and we're going to get black studies, but we all have to do that together. Well, once we got ethnic studies, the coalition broke down and Asians began to then focus on, hey, we're just, we just want Asian studies. We want Asian studies. We don't want any Black history um, involved in it. We want the standards to be only dealing with a, uh, Asian history. Um, and then they started lobbying. They went to the state. Uh, they used this coalition we built and the resources and the victories to then propel their own victory. And the victory for them was that now this uh, legislation does not target Asian studies like it might target Latinx or Black studies that these Republicans, when you speak to them, they actually agree, oh yeah, yeah, we should have Asian studies. I don't know about black studies though. I don't know about ethnic studies though. That sounds like critical race theory. And I think that was a unique split in the coalition that we haven't really talked about in public. Uh, and and I, I'm not calling anyone out. I'm not trying to start drama, but that's a real thing that happened um, that, that, that prevented coalition building from happening and from uh, succeeding. Um, and and it, it pains me because coalition 
building is the only path to liberation. There's no such thing as, okay, we, we're gonna achieve um, black liberation and then we're gonna come back for queer liberation. It all happens in tandem and all happens together. But it's also clear that we misunderstand intersectionality. We misunderstand that if they're gonna come for me, oh, you are next. Or if they're coming for me, they're not coming for a piece of me, they're coming for all of me and all of my community. It's a historic mistake we continue to make to divide up our communities, to allow disagreements and differences to divide us uh, when white supremacy is coming for all of us. Yes, white people too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lucia, you put something in the chat I think is pretty important, but I want to just give a little context here. I looked up on the map where your school is, Frederick Douglass High School in uh, West Atlanta. Um, and, and the one thing that drew my eye immediately on the Google map was there are two KIPP charter schools that surround you. So I, I want to put that forward as we get, because Lucia, I think your uh, question's important. Yes. Um, so this is, this is, let me say first that I'm a public school educator. I'm a huge supporter of public schools. I've benefited from public schools, as have many of my ancestors. Still, our public schools today are carceral states. They are places of significant violence. And I by no means believe our public schools are the answers um, uh, or are the places of liberation. And this is where I think black organizers sometimes break with white organizers and, and education on the progressive side. Because um, to a degree, I do believe in some, some, I don't know how it looks, but some level of school choice. Um, I believe that when schools are failing, that um, we need intervention out the Yahoo. But in the short term, in the, in the real time, we need to save our students and we need to provide them with a community, with an environment that's conducive to learning and that is safe. And sometimes that means they have to be homeschooled. Sometimes they mean, that means a, a number of things. I do not generally support charter schools because of how they have taken money from public schools and very clearly how they are an indicator on the west side of Atlanta, for instance, of gentrification. What's happening with these charter schools and how they're, how they're being rolled out in places like Atlanta public schools is a direct attack on the historical schools that we have like Frederick Douglass. And so instead of creating plans and investing um, holistically in places like Doug that, that have some degree of failure, what we're doing is building a charter school or selling, and this might happen in Doug, return to this conversation we need to, selling public schools that are failing to charter schools and, and charterizing them over a period of time. Um, it, it, it sometimes makes me wonder, do we, do we want schools like Doug to succeed? Or are we creating this ceiling where they'll never be able to uh, circumvent, they'll never be able to overcome this barrier because we want them to be failing because we really do want a charter school. Because we want this area not to stay black and, and successful and as it has been historically, we want it to continue to decline so that then it's gentrified. So I do think charter schools are, are and the voucher bills and, and a lot of the school choice as it has been done by conservatives in this state has been detrimental to public education. I want us to think about though, how we uh, save our students from these schools that are under the deep control of the government, 
are, are, are violent to teachers or oppressive to teachers? How do we reimagine that whole system so that we can have public schools that are, uh, uh, that are more successful and more effective? Uh, and, and that's a that's a kind of nuance. I don't know if we're, we're getting to that nuance within the whole school choice debate and the school choice movement. Yeah, it seems like I mean that there are so many thorny, thorny issues here because like idealizing the public school is like, you know, which is often an ideology factory isn't going to get us isn't going to get us many places either. But then like what freedoms do you get or give up um, in in um, in proposing alternatives? And uh, yeah, it makes me think I mean, it makes me think of what happened in New Orleans after Katrina, which is just all of these charter schools went in and standardized education and gutted teaching and learning and what starts as an argument about school choice ends up being actually no choice at all. Um, I was also thinking before about sort of some of the coalitional fissures and areas of tension and break that you were talking about um, around sort of Asian conservatives black educators who's like getting together around ethnic studies and then splitting um, on uh, as the fight went on. It made me think about the um, the New York City fight over the specialized schools and standardized testing, um, where one of the ways that segregation looks in New York City is that these sort of elite public schools that are admissions testing and missions based um, are segregated um, and it's mostly white and Asian students and mostly Asian students with a significant amount of wealth. Um, as, as we know, standardized test scores and wealth are, are densely correlated. And then black and Latinx students who are tending to not get admission slots at all and how a uh, fight anchored in anti-racist and anti-classist commitments ended up splitting communities of color in the city um, internally and, and internally with the, and also sort of across the board. Um, so I'm curious, both of those examples, um, New York, New Orleans, how do you see the Atlanta context? Um, how do you see the fight you're having in Atlanta kind of reflected um, around the country, what what national and even international connections in your organizing work, um, yeah, to other cities. Yeah, so I was really excited to, and I've had a great time at APS generally because of their emphasis on um, on equity, and um, I, you know, a lot of the things we pushed in Gwinnett, Atlanta, City Schools of Decatur, they have. They, they they have standards around social emotional learning. They have equity development and professional development for teachers. Um, they have those things. And uh, I think my issue now is to make sure that equity is not lip service. And it is lip service when you push standardized testing. And when you you know I'm at a I'm at the lowest performing high school in um, in APS. And so the the goal for our school is to get off the public schools list, right? Is to get the state out of our, um, our, our, our school building. And that means for the administration, raise test scores. Um, and so we're having what we're having all across um, the country, especially in progressive school districts, is how these standardized tests are failing. As an abolitionist, I don't want less standardized tests. I want them gone. 
Testing and assessment plays a very important part in the instructional practice. And that's why we need to return that power to the classroom teacher, to the professional learning community, and to the local school. Um, and standardized tests don't do that. Um, and, and so looking at my students, my students had to take um, some tests this the year, not in my class, or last year, not my class. And what I would do, what we would do is look at the history of standardized tests. What does a standardized test do? And they can see the white supremacist foundation. And then, hey, y'all, as you're studying, do know that you have the option to opt out. And I did get in trouble for that. And there was a push to, to make sure students don't opt out. But I wanted to, them to know their federal rights. And I wanted to know the possibility of pushing back that the standardized testing, there is a way to get out of it. It's not mandated. And that's a conversation we should be having all, all around. I think the other conversation is around, you know, we're not far removed historically from the cheating scandal in Atlanta. And so uh, the, the, not only this, is the standardized testing important, but how we treat our teachers. The fact that we're sending teachers to jail on RICO charges for cheating on a standardized test that should not have been administered in the first place is absolutely egregious. But as part of the national conversation around what rights should teachers have? What safeties and protections should they have? What say should they have as we make them go back in the classroom at various points of the pandemic, as we make, make them counselors, babysitters, uh, 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 nurses, as we increase the roles that they have to have. Um, and then as we think about them as employees, because yes, I'm a, I'm a teacher and, and my, I'm, a, uh, I'm here to serve students, but I'm also a worker. And in my work, that we're in a very weird profession where my working conditions are students' learning conditions and they can't be separated. Uh, and so that, that national conversation about how to treat teachers and how to allow them to be practitioners is one that is, I mean, Atlanta is a focal point. Yeah, we're getting near the end of our time and there's just, it's been so amazing to hear. Uh, about your own uh, situation and your um, struggle and solutions. Uh, where, where do you and your students find joy in all this? Yeah, this is the most important part. There are four pillars of my abolitionist classroom. That's criticality, intellectualism, identity, and joy. And joy really, it only goes last because it's alphabetical. But joy is the most important part. In my classroom, um, again, 96% Black, I want my students to be themselves fully. As Black as they want to be, as queer as they want to be, as loud as they want to be uh, within the parameters of respecting other people. Um, and, and they have enjoyed that. Um, and, and some specific things we do, we listen to music. I have my students come in and they're jamming off the off the rip and I use what's called hip-hop pedagogy to then implement their musical styles and choices throughout their deliverables or throughout instruction or throughout how they learn um we do allow laughing and and I can laugh at myself you have to have skin number one you have to have thick skin to be in front of this generation of scholars so um one of the joyful things we have roast sessions they start roasting me and and they're they're really good at it I don't know how these students, you know, they don't like to write, but the way they put their words together <laughs> sometimes is beautiful. Man, the unique ways I've been cursed out. I'm not even gonna, you're not even gonna get in trouble because you were so eloquent with your words. Um, and and they, I allow them to do and be kids. Um, sometimes they are TikToking. 
and I allow them to TikTok. Yes, we're going to take breaks. They want to go outside. They don't want to be in a room for seven and a half hours. They want to be outside, um, but also recognize their personalities. We joke. We have fun. We laugh. We talk about um, uh, the latest uh, trend on TikTok or Instagram by treating them like humans in a lot of ways because i'm 27 treating them like my younger brothers or sisters they have this joyful experience that they won't forget and they might forget everything that that was taught or learned or explored but they won't forget this feeling they had of welcoming and belonging when they stepped into mr downer's class that's really that's really wonderful um I, I want to be respectful of all of all of our time. Um, Anthony, I before we ask our what are you listening to, consuming, reading, whatever, um, I want to give time um, if there's anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure to put on the table before we um, before we wrap up here. Yes, I, first of all, I love this podcast space. Of course, I have a podcast because we need to continue to talk about and normalize conversations like this. We also need to let our comrades know they're not alone in this fight. So I want comrades in, in spaces that are digital are important because comrades all over the globe need to know you are not alone in this fight for equity, for social justice, for abolitionism. Um, and, and there are collectives out there. So plug in, reach out to us folks. That's awesome. Oh, Tina, go ahead. No. That's that's wonderful. So, um, are we are we ready to get to the what are we consuming? Yes, absolutely. So first off, I want everybody to follow me on Instagram at the North. That's N A W F Star um, for updates on my podcast and some other projects that I have going on, like my tutoring business. Uh, but currently, I'm watching. Uh, don't judge me. The Queen of the South is so good. I know there are a lot of drugs. But it's so good on Netflix. Um, I also really like Snowfall, too. Um, I don't sell drugs. I, I'm a teacher. But <laughs> these are really entertaining um, um, a series. I'm reading Ethical Ambition by Derek Bell, uh, who was one of the founders of Critical Race Theory, as well as Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson, and The Art of Black Teaching. That's by Jarvis Givens um, of, out of Harvard. Uh, and then music-wise, I'm still jamming to Kendrick's album. I feel like y'all didn't give him enough love. Shame on y'all. But I'll let you, uh, I'll give you a redo because this Friday, Queen Beyonce drops her album. So go ahead and listen to that. King Kendrick, Queen Beyonce, all summer long. That's what I'm doing. All right. Tina, your turn. Uh, well, this I get one nerd moment and then one, <laughs> what, I'm not, what I'm, else I'm reading. I'm reading this Lessons in Liberation book. Yes. Uh, not just, I mean, I've had it a while because it really helps helps me understand my own teaching in uh, higher education. Tell uh, listeners who it's by, how to get it. Thank you. It is by the Education for Liberation Network and Critical Resistance Editorial Collective. Uh, it's called Lessons in Liberation, an Abolitionist Toolkit for Educators. Um, talks a lot about the uh, prison industrial complex and the school to uh, prison pipeline. And, you know, Bettina Love, I, you know, we interviewed her what two years ago, and I'm hearing when you call your students scholars and the whole concept of mattering, oh, it's just, uh, it's deep and I can feel it. Uh, so thank you for that, Anthony. And then I've gotten into 
graphic novels and um, I teach apocalyptic politics and culture, uh, film, that kind of thing. So I've been reading the graphic novel of Parable of the Sower, which uh, I really, it's, it's interesting to see the, the two formats, how, the, how it switches from novel to, um, to graphic novel. And then, you know, Octavia Butler's um, dystopian voice is all too current, unfortunately. All right, Lucia. Um, so Parable of the Sower is Skidmore's common reading. So that's one that I'm about to pick back up, but I'm glad to know about that, um, the graphic novel. Um, let's see. So I am um, house sitting or and cat sitting. Um, and the people I'm cat sitting for have Paramount Plus, which is a TV subscription that I will not pay for. Although my father just told me that he pays for it. And so I'm like, how come you did not let me in on this? Anyway, they have, in addition to the show I'm about to talk about, they have like all of the back episodes of, of Daria, my personal um, icon, and like all these old Nickelodeon shows and my father, um, and a retired professor is like, you can just sit around and watch Drunk History all day. Drunk History is the best show. That and we know 911 um, and Better Call Saul. That's what Mark Holzather would recommend. Anyway, what I am watching on Paramount Plus is um, a show called The Good Fight, which is the follow-up to The Good Wife. Y'all know it. Okay. Um, so it's like a legal sort of drama, different, um, I don't know what it's called, and like that every episode is like a new case, but then there are stories that go through. It. It's the sequel basically to The Good Wife, um, which was a more um, sort of mainstream show. The Good Fight is based in Chicago, and it starts when this like old is themed like boomer white carceral feminist lawyer diane lockhart loses all her money in a ponzi scheme and has to come out of retirement and start in lawyer again and the only place she can get a job um, is an all-black law firm that um, specializes in cases um, uh, that are prosecuting the chicago police for murdering black people um and 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 there's a, there's another white woman character who ends up also kind of joining the law firm and so it's about the internal politics of this law firm in chicago um and it's i mean it's like highly addictive in a soapy kind of way but also like a really interesting um really interesting idea to try to make work on television. There's a reason it did not get picked up by network. Um, television is sort of like in this corner on Paramount Plus. Anyway, I'm watching it. I think it's um, I think it's it's fascinating and troubling and definitely a guilty pleasure, which I'm happy to not have to pay for myself, um, but to take advantage of when I am living in someone else's house. Well, Anthony Downer, uh, thank you so much for, for being on our podcast, and we look forward to season three of What Dad on Wednesdays, your your wonderful podcast, and, and for uh, telling us and uh, sharing your stories, your struggles, and your joy. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, y'all. Y'all family now, so welcome, comrades, uh, and I look forward to our next conversation.
been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our conversation with abolitionist teacher and community organizer, Anthony Downer, who teaches Africana Studies and Civics at Frederick Douglass High School in Atlanta, Georgia. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our summer intern is Nasrat Sarwar. Our theme music is composed and conducted and performed by Lance Eric Hagen, along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Acrasis. It's entitled Paralysis Chatterbox, and it can be found on their CD, Children Singing in Hell, and it's on Bandcamp.com. Beats and Trumpet by Mark McKee, and Raps Guitar by Max Bowen. After nearly five years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost of maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com. Thank you for listening.